What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today on What Got You There Sean talks with Colin O'Grady Before beginning his career in finance, Colin left to explore the world on a backpacking trip. While in Thailand, Colin suffered a tragic accident and was severely burned in a fire. His injuries covered nearly 25% of his body, primarily damaging his legs and feet. Doctors warned that he may never walk normally again, but Colin was determined and beat the odds. Roughly 18 months later, he completed a triathlon. He then went on to achieve numerous other incredible athletic feats, including breaking the world record for conquering the Beyond 7-2 Explorers Grand Slam in just 139 days. He also summited the tallest peak on each of the seven continents and skied the last degree to the North and South Poles. Fewer than 50 people have ever completed this staggering achievement, and only four in under a year. With grit and perseverance, Colin became the fastest person to complete the mountaineering challenge, also breaking the speed record for the seven summits in 132 days. Here the remarkable journey of this two-time world record holder. Colin, thanks for joining us on What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, we were talking in the pre-call. I mean, there are so many different directions we can go with this, but I want to know, how do you break down the different chapters of your life? Oh, that's a good question. It's uh, It's been an interesting road. You know, I grew up uh, in the Pacific Northwest, was born on a, a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington, um, but moved to Portland, Oregon when I was uh, about nine months old. So I consider Portland, Oregon to be my hometown. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the different chapters, I guess the way I break them down is kind of, of course, you know, childhood, early childhood till 10 years old. And then, uh, you know, my parents divorced around that time, although it's very amicable and Big, big loving family, but uh, that's kind of a, the first break, I suppose, in the chapter breaks, if you had to make chapters. And then um, kind of second half of childhood and being a teenager, my dad actually ended up uh, moving to Hawaii uh, part of that time. So kind of grew up between Portland and Hawaii through those teenage years. He's still there as an organic farmer. And then, um, you know, as an athlete growing up, swimmer, soccer player, and then going off to college, kind of had to choose one uh, sport to focus on. So I was focused on swimming in college where I you know, went to Yale University, swam out there and big, big change moving from being a public school kid in Portland, Oregon to, you know, ended up at uh, a school like Yale and swimming. That was a massive um, culture shock for me. So that was a, a whole other chapter. And then um, let's see, uh, leaving Yale to travel the world and finding myself in rural Thailand, severely burning a fire, being told I would never walk again, certainly is a massive chapter in my life, but that, you know, led me to, I'm sure we'll get into more details to, to racing triathlon and becoming a professional athlete. And ultimately, uh, in the last couple of years setting you know, a couple of world records in mountaineering. So yeah, various different chapters, certainly peaks, valleys, highs, lows, uh, different geography, all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. I asked the question because, I mean, any one of those chapters we could go down and have a two-hour-long podcast on. But let's start in Thailand. Uh, obviously, interested in travel brought you there. How do you end up burning 25% of your body? Yeah, so, you know, I always dreamed of being able to travel around the world. You know, growing up as a kid, didn't have, you know, a ton of resources and my family to be able to, you know, take trips like that internationally. Um, so I, you know, started painting houses when I was a kid, 15, 16 years old, started a painting company with my childhood buddy and, um, kind of saved as much money as I could every year in the hopes of when I graduated college, being able to kind of just go spread my wings, uh, in the world, certainly not anything lavish, but, you know, a backpack and a surfboard and, you know, enough money for a few, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and a hostel over my head or hitchhiking and whatnot, but, uh, went off, you know, to travel the world after college, um, on a shoestring budget and ended up, you know, in, in New Zealand and Thailand and Fiji on a layover and then ended up in, up in Thailand, um, after Australia. And, you know, it had been an incredible trip this far, just being, you know, out in the world on my own, meeting people from all over the world, 
um, and ended up, uh, unfortunately on a beach in Thailand. Um, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but I was jumping a flaming jump rope. Um, and those of you listening who have actually been to Thailand might be aware that, you know, fire dancing and all that kind of stuff is fairly common over there. So it wasn't as if I just thought of the idea to do that on my own. Um, but nonetheless, it was, uh, hindsight's 2020, not, not a very, bright idea, but I was, you know, jumping a flaming jump rope, the rope wrapped around my leg, splattered my body fully, um, of kerosene, lit my body completely on fire to my neck. Um, fortunately I had, uh, the ocean was a few steps away. So I was able to jump into the ocean to extinguish the flames, but not before about 25% of my body, as you mentioned, was severely burned, you know, predominantly my legs and feet. Um, and I was in the middle of nowhere. I was actually on an Island in the Gulf of Thailand, uh, by the name of Kotao. So there was no proper hospital, you know, no ambulance. Instead of an ambulance, I had a moped ride down a dirt path to a one room nursing station, you know, underwent eight surgeries where there was a cat running around my bed and across my chest in the ICU. Um, so pretty, pretty much the last place in the world you want to end up with that serious of an injury for sure. <laughs> What's your stress level like during that time, both when you first get burned and you're in the ocean. And then also I- I'm assuming there was some, I mean, or tra- traumatic incident where you're not even really feeling the pain maybe. And then also what it's like in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was, you know, a terrible, terrible moment in my life. Certainly the biggest, you know, significant, you know, trauma, uh, for sure. I mean, you know, the ocean saved my life, but having no skin on 25% of your body and then jumping into salt water is certainly enough to, uh, uh, get the pain, uh, really high up. You know, was I think that the I'm most me- painful moment of your life. I mean, up to that point that actually the next seven, eight days, it actually got a lot worse, uh, kind of burns keep, you know, getting worse, uh, before they get better. Um, I'm so sure that a cat of, wasn't a help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The cat, the, you know, lack of, you know, communication. And also, you know, here I am on the other side of the world, kind of all alone. And doctors tell me like, Hey, look, you're never going to walk again. Normally, you know, I'd have been an athlete my whole life. It was kind of, you know, sure. Of course there was the physical trauma, but the emotional trauma of trying to you know, reformat like where I was at and just kind of feeling like, wow, in an instant, my like complete life or at least life as I knew it was completely over. And so that was a huge, huge shock, um, to me. Um, you know, the good, the good news is, and kind of the hero of this story, in my opinion, was my mother, you know, she flew over to Thailand and arrived out on this island about, you know, day four or five, um, after I had been burned. And, you know, she tells me now, of course, that she was just as afraid as I was, you know, seeing me burn, seeing me not be able to walk, you know, having these Thai doctors who was, you know, even a language and cultural barrier, not being able to communicate super effectively. You know, she was super afraid, um, as you can imagine. But instead of kind of wallowing in that fear and that trauma with me, she actually came into my hospital room every day, kind of with a smile on her face and an air of positivity, saying things like, okay, Colin, like, you know, this is really bad, but let's think about the future. You know, what do you want to do when you get out of here? Let's dream, you know, let's set a goal. And I was like, what are you talking about, mom? Like, look at me. I can't walk. My life is over. You know, I was just in this really depressed physical and emotional state. And she just kind of kept at me with this sort of positive mindset and just kind of like, let's think about the positive. Like you have a whole life in front of you and all this sort of stuff. And you know, that really changed my life, to be honest, as you'll see, as the story unfolds, I, you know, a few days after she arrived, I was like, okay, mom, like, let me just set a ridiculous goal. Then I'm, you know, I'm going to race a triathlon one day when I'm done with this, which, you know, like I said, I've been a collegiate swimmer, but I'd never biked or run and looking at my legs seemed ridiculous thing to say. Like, you know, she could have easily said like, well, I said, set a goal. Like maybe let's set something a little more realistic, like, you know, something that doesn't use your legs maybe. Um, but she, instead she was like, all right, great. That's your goal. Let's focus on that. And so from that moment onwards, I just started dreaming and thinking about triathlon and learning what that's sport was. Um, I actually asked the Thai doctor to bring in a couple of like 10 pound weights. I told him I'm, I'm training for a triathlon now. And he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like lifting like these weights in a hospital bed, um, middle of nowhere. Um, but that kind of gave me a purpose, a focus, a goal. Um, and you know, really, you know, big turning point. I, I talk about this a little bit in the Ted talk that I gave last year on this story, but I, you know, I get back to Portland. I still haven't taken a single step, you know, carried on and off the plane. Uh, I've been in the hospital for a couple of months at this point. So I haven't taken a step. Like I said, I'm in a wheelchair back in my mom's, um, kitchen and she's she, the next morning. She goes, okay, Colin, well now you've got this triathlon goal. Today, your goal is to take your first step. And then she grabbed a chair from the kitchen table and placed it one step in front of my wheelchair. And she said, you need to figure out how to get out of your wheelchair somehow, take one step and sit back down in that chair in front of you. 
Um, and that, you know, it took me three, four hours that day to just work up the courage and strength to even attempt to take a step. But I did, I took my first step that day. Um, and then the next day she moved the chair five steps away. The next day she moved the chair 10 steps away. Um, and each day I got a little bit stronger until eventually I could kind of walk again. And, you know, eventually several months later I could sort of jog again, but all the while I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to race a triathlon. And so, you know, about a year after the incident, I kind of was, you know, trying to just get my life back on track. I had an economics degree um, and thought, you know, I should go work, you know, get a real job and kind of get myself back on track. So I moved to Chicago, took a job, a Wall Street finance job um, and said, you know what, I should sign up for the Chicago triathlon this summer. Um, and so I started, you know, joined a gym and kind of started training. And again, I never did, did triathlon before. So I was just kind of learning, um, just asking people at the gym, like, what's this all about? And how do you, you know, race a bike? And just all these sort of basic questions until about 18 months after my burn accident, I did race the Chicago triathlon, Olympic distance triathlon. And, you know, come my complete surprise, you know, finishing the race was amazing. You know, that was a dream come true 18 months earlier being told I would never walk again to cross a triathlon finish line was a huge achievement for me. Um, but to my complete and other surprise, I hadn't just actually finished the race, but I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon placing first out of, you know, more than 4,000 participants on the day. Um, and kind of, you know, reframing my entire mindset on, on what is possible and really being able to reflect on, wow, 18 months ago, this huge tragedy happened. I went through this trauma, but by shifting my mindset towards the positive, I was able not only to achieve this goal, but I was able to thrive and win this huge race that actually set my life on a completely different direction. I quit my job, Wall Street job the next day and became a professional triathlete. And, you know, 10 years <laughs> in the future now, here I am still as an athlete and all of that. So uh, it's been a crazy journey. Man, Colin, you're an absolute freak of nature. I mean, <laughs> we could stop the podcast there and just overcoming that burn. And then obviously winning the Chicago triathlon is is truly remarkable. So, I mean, were you absolutely blown away when you won that? Or was there a little bit of something in the back of your mind that thought you might have that chance to do that? Honestly, I had no idea. Like I said, I was, you know, I was training at this local gym. Um, you know, I was asking, literally asking random guys in the gym, like guys who had like nice bikes, like, Hey, have you done a triathlon before? And I was like, you know, how do you, like, I was like, I was like, so you swim, but I don't understand. Like, how do you put your bike shoes on? Like literally like most basic questions. Um, that one could ask about the sport. And I was just kind of training by myself. Like, again, I was asking for tips and pointers and, you know, again, eventually met a couple guys who helped me out with a few things, but it wasn't like I knew a ton about the sport. And then the way triathlon works is, you know, at a marathon or something like that, everyone starts at the same time, but in triathlon, because it's, you know, be too dangerous for you know thousands of people to start swimming at the same time, they start you in waves of about a hundred people. So there's, again, I was a four or 5,000 participants on the day. So there were about 50 waves of 100 people divided up by the different genders and age groups and whatnot. And so I think I was something like wave 39 of, uh, you know, 50 and so, and, and leaving every five minutes. So I knew when I was racing the race, I was like, huh, like no one has passed me. So I guess I'm like holding my position, whatever. <laughs> but when I finished the race. I mean, some people had finished the race before I even started. Some people had started the race after I had finished, you know, people are spread out throughout, you know, of course of this whole day basically. And so it wasn't until, you know, my grandmother, she lives in Chicago. She was nice enough to come and meet me at the finish line and give me a hug and a high five. And then we walked back over and collected my bike and my wetsuit and had lunch. And then I was like, let's go back over the finish line. We should like see what, you know, what my finishing time was, how I did. And we walked back over there and like, they're like, uh, yeah, you won the whole race. Like, and I was like, excuse me, like my age group. And they're like, no, the whole race. Um, so it was a complete, a complete, uh, surprise, um, for me on the day. And, uh, like I said, it really, you know, the win itself of course is fun. You know, I've been a, an athlete my whole life and competitive and I, you know, winning is always fun, I suppose. Um, but that was more or less just a cherry on top. It was more just really thinking about on those moments in the Thai hospital and realizing that my mom had given me such an amazing gift of realizing what is possible. And, you know, you said, Oh, you're a freak of nature. And, you know, I'll, I'll smile and take that compliment, but really, you know, it's become my belief the more and more I've dove into this, that all of us, every single person on this planet has reservoirs of untapped potential and can achieve amazing things, particularly when facing setbacks. And you can shift your mindset towards the positive to achieve those things too often, you know, and I'm guilty of this at times. And I certainly was guilty of this in Thailand of being like, nope, my life's over. I'm giving up all flooded with doubt and fear and shame and all these things. And that's common. We all face those again, even myself at times, you know, face those emotional setbacks. But now I have learned that, wow, actually I have an option of how 
to shift my mindset towards a positive. I can choose how I'm reacting to this setback um, and have the ability to actually overcome and achieve it and not just you know get on the other side of it, but thrive on the other side of it. Oh, I absolutely love that mindset. That was a major reason why I wanted to have you on. But now I want to transition to that next chapter of your life. I mean, so you doing triathlons a number of years, doing it professionally, what then inspires you to tackle this challenge that you end up conquering in the Explorers Grand Slam? Yeah. So, you know, I raced triathlon for about six years professionally from 2009, 2015. Um, you know, things have been going really well for me as an athlete. Of course I had my, you know, ups and downs, victories and defeats. Um, but overall things were trending really positively for me. In fact, the peak age for triathlon, particularly Ironman triathlon is, you know, mid thirties. And at the time I was about 29 years old, had, had some solid sponsorship behind me. Um, and interestingly enough, I, you know, I, I won this half Ironman race in late 2014. It was also same, around the same time that I was um, going to you know, propose to Jenna, my longtime girlfriend, who had been really supportive of my triathlon career. And it was just this moment in time where I was reflecting on kind of the next chapter of my life, kind of the way that you started this podcast with that question. And it was this feeling of like, wow, like I've done triathlon. This has been amazing. I've raced in 25 countries, six different continents, represented the U.S. all over the world. What a dream come true. As a kid, I always dreamed of being a professional athlete and, you know, didn't think I was going to quite make it there. And here I am, like racing all over the world. But I also got to a point after six years where I was like, I feel like this chapter might be ending in a strange way. Like people thought I was crazy. They're like, what do you mean? Like you're just on your, you're, you're just getting even better at this. Um, and I was like, you know, it feels self-serving in the way it was like, you know, I'm happy when I win. Maybe my sponsors are happy when I win, but there wasn't sort of a larger, deeper purpose to it. Um, and so I had always been passionate about giving back in the community in some way. And I was like, you know what? I'm so passionate about pushing my body, body in unique and interesting ways. But I wonder if we can pivot that in a way that allows us to have greater impact in the community. So Jenna and I together dreamed up this idea to say, hey, I wonder if you had if you were able to break the world record for the Explorers Grand Slam, and I'll get into more details of what that means in a second, um, with the larger purpose of starting a nonprofit and using the media and programming, you know, uh, from, from the media effort of this to shed light on a cause that's super important to us, which was combating childhood obesity, inspiring kids to get outside, move their body, live active, healthy lives, and use kind of my athletic platform um, to do some larger good in the community. And so that was really um, what the dream was. So the Explorers Grand Slam is to climb the seven summits, which is the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as complete expeditions to both the North and South Pole. Um, at the time of fewer than 50 people in history have ever completed the entire Grand Slam. Um, and I was aiming to do it in world record time, which meant going from mountain to mountain without stopping at all in between. Um, you know, you're talking about Mount Everest, Denali, Kilimanjaro, the North Pole, the South Pole, no breaks in between, literally finishing one, flying to the next um, in the hopes of becoming the fastest person to you know, achieve that consecutively. Um, and although that was a, you know, a really nice idea at the time and it was like, oh, that sounds beautiful and great, this nonprofit <laughs> and this PR, like Jenna and I knew nothing about any of this. Like I wasn't a professional mountaineer. I did grow up climbing mountains in Portland, so I had some background in that, but certainly tackling Everest or something like that was, you know, way more significant than anything I'd ever done. Um, not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, we had no background in media PR, not to mention the fact we needed to raise a half a million dollars just to like be able to afford the crazy logistics that one needs to like get a Russian helicopter to land you somewhere near the ice Arctic sea ice to start a, you know, I mean, it was crazy, all these hurdles, but we were like, you know what? Like, we'll figure it out. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of growth mindset. You know, it's that idea that, you know, you are where you are at any given moment, but doesn't mean you have to stay there. So we're like, we don't know how to do all these things, but like, we're willing to figure it out. And so for really, you know, and I'm sure, and we're going to talk about some of the, you know, exciting and harrowing details of what it meant to be on Everest and climb these mountains. And, but, you know, I would be remiss to not mention before that the year and a half that Jenna and I set ourselves this ridiculously lofty goal and then looked at ourselves and go, Right. That's a really cool idea on our whiteboard in our apartment. But like, how are we going to pull this off? And then spent the next year and a half with this idea of just asking for help, trying to figure it out, learning, reading, training, all of the things till after a year and a half, we actually had pulled all those things together, founded a nonprofit, had sponsorships in place, um, and we're ready to set off on this adventure to see if I could set this world record with, again, the larger purpose of inspiring kids everywhere to live active, healthy lives. I mean, do you thrive in chaos? Are you constantly looking for it? It seems like you're always have just a million things going on and these big audacious goals that you're tackling. You know, uh, that's an interesting way to put it. Do I thrive in chaos? I'm not sure I thrive in chaos, but I, what I will say is 
Um, you know, I'm a big believer in setting a big goal, obviously. Um, you know, for me, you know, like if you go back to Thailand, it was like, I'm burning this fire. There's a long road to recovery here, but at the end of that road, I need this big sort of light at the end of the tunnel. I need this triathlon. And so it was the same thing with this goal here, which is like, there was a million incremental steps to getting Jenna and I from an idea in our apartment to me, to the summit of Everest and the summit of Denali and set this world record and hopefully have a charitable impact and all these things. But it was like, let's set the big goal first. And then let's kind of reverse engineer it. Um, you know, and I, I love actually that metaphor what my mom did with that, with that chair, with that first single step. It's like, okay, great. Now you've got this massive goal. Okay, what is this first step we can take? What's the first incremental goal? And so for Jenna and I, that was literally, I mean, we we're like, okay, so we have this idea. We want to do a media campaign. What does that mean? Like literally, neither of us have background in it. So we, we open up Google and we ask Google, like, Google, what's <laughs> What's the difference between marketing and PR? Like, I mean, we're just asking like the most basic questions to like an internet search bar. Um, but that was the first step, you know, it wasn't the racing of the triathlon, but it was the chair right in front of the wheelchair going, okay, like let's take one step. Who knows? Like after one step, you can take two steps. After two steps, you can take three. And so it's not so much thriving in chaos, but it is the ability to say, Hey, I'm going to try 20 different things on as incremental steps, 19 of them might be missteps, but I'm going to learn something from each of them so that when the 20th idea comes to play, I'm going to, you know, work it out. Or, you know, we asked a hundred companies to support this project and the first 99 said, no, like crazy idea. Or why do you think you can do that? Or you don't have a big enough, you know, you don't have enough Instagram followers that doesn't have a proper ROI for us. Right. But each time I pitched a company, I learned how to like craft my pitch better, what companies might be looking for, what might be this. And finally on the hundredth one, we found somebody willing to support the project. So it's that idea of continuing to move forward despite the sort of incremental setbacks along the way while kind of working towards that one larger goal. Oh, that's awesome. I absolutely love how you articulated that. And I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up at all. You continually mention these unbelievably strong women in your life. Can you just hit on the impact that they've had on you? I know you mentioned some of the things your mom did and you keep mentioning Jenna and all this. Do you constantly look for them, uh, to them for support? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, um, it is actually a, 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 a small frustration of mine that sometimes I feel like, you know, people give me a lot of credit for my success and all that. And, you know, there's no way that I have this success without, you know, particularly Jenna and my mother, um, in my life. But if I even go back through my life, you know, there was a, my, my, first third, my first fourth and fifth grade teacher was a woman named Shannon Pinnell that had deep, deep, deep impact on my life. I actually have five older sisters, um, who have all mentored and guided me in various different ways. There's no doubt that the, uh, the strong feminine, uh, strength, energy, um, cunning, um, has been a huge part of my success. And I would be nowhere, nowhere near where I am today without their hard, hard work, dedication, smarts, intelligence, um, empathy, compassion, all of those things. Um, and so I'm in great date, great debt of gratitude, um, to them for sure. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, no, it's awesome hearing how grateful you are for that. And I know a lot of the listeners are really going to resonate with that and hopefully they go out and let someone know how much they appreciate the impact they've had on their life. But I mean, we, we need to jump into this and I don't even know how to begin tackling this. Do you kind of want to run through maybe the logistical aspects and how you conquer these mountains and, and end up where you do? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, obviously probably not enough time to tell stories on all of them, although there are good stories on each one of them, the legs, but basically the way that this project started, um, you know, the, the order of the climbing, um, and expeditions was a little bit organized around weather, of course. So the first place I needed to go was the Southern hemisphere. So this Antarctica. Um, so in January, um, of 2016, I set off, um, my first expedition was to the South pole, um, so I crossed the way the record for the Explorers Grand Slam works is that you actually have to cross the, at least the last degree of latitude to reach the pole. Um, so I was dropped off at the 89th degree and then I basically had a 150 pound sled with all my gear, tent, food, supplies with me, dragging behind me, um, you know, day by day, average temperature minus 40 degrees to reach, um, the South pole. I, uh, again, I, I mentioned this, there's a good, there's a good image in my Ted talk that kind of this, but when I say minus 40 degrees, sometimes you're like, Oh wow, that's cold. And I'm like, no, my, listen to that minus 40. <laughs> degrees. Like I had never, I had never felt that temperature before. And the best way I can sum it up is again, I show a photo in that, in that talk, but it's, uh, you know, I took a cup of boiling water out of my tent and threw it into the air and it instantly turns into ice. Like, you know, that's what minus 40 degrees looks like. So you can only imagine what it's like to day by day, hour by hour, drag yourself, um, 
and your gear across that landscape. So that was, that was uh, expedition one. And then straight from there to climbing Mount Vincent, which is the tallest mountain in Antarctica. So actually two of the nine expeditions took place, um, in Antarctica. And then from there straight over to Aconcagua, the tallest mountain in South America. Um, and then we're able to slot back in Kilimanjaro. This is kind of one of the funny sort of logistic stories, but originally I had thought I would climb Kilimanjaro, the tallest mountain in Africa, um, after a couple of the other mountains, but I was a little bit ahead of schedule coming off Aconcagua. Concagua. So I call home to Jenna, who's, you know, basically, again, she wasn't just like helping me with this project. I mean, she was running this project. I sometimes say that I had the easy job. Like I'm, I'm doing this linear task of climbing these mountains. Like she's back home trying to run a nonprofit, trying to run a media campaign. We have super limited resources. You know, in the end we had about 500 million earned media impressions, 50 million impressions on social. I was the first person ever to Snapchat from the summit of Everest, which had 22 million views, the most viewed Snapchat story of the entire year in 2016. I mean, we had some great successes with the media, but it's not like we had this a big like media agency working for us, like Jen, again, <laughs> my cousin, like helping her out, like in a room. So she's like running all this, also like working with all these school kids and public schools and teachers with our nonprofit, like all this sort of stuff and keeping me alive out there and running the logistics. And so in the midst of all of that, I call her and I'm like, Hey, so I think actually we have a little bit of time. Maybe we should squeeze in Kilimanjaro right now. And she's like, okay, like, what do you, that's And I was like, I was like, what I'm telling you is I need you to get me from Mendoza, Argentina to Kilimanjaro tomorrow. And I'm going to try to climb Kilimanjaro. Usually Kilimanjaro is climbing in about five, six, seven days. I was like, I want to see if I can climb it in one single day and one push. And she's like, okay. And she's like, give me a second. So an hour later, she sends me back my itinerary. She's like, okay, I booked you like the best itinerary I could find. And I'm like, are you kidding me? She's like, yeah. And I was like, what? She's like, the itinerary was leaving Mendoza, Argentina, flying to Sao Paulo, Brazil, seven hour layover in the Sao Paulo airport, then a flight from Sao Paulo to Adidas Ababa, Ethiopia, 15 hours in the Ethiopia airport. And then and a flight to Moshi, Tanzania, arriving at like 7 p.m. and beginning the Kilimanjaro climb at 6 a.m. the following morning. She was like, all right, you, you said you wanted this, ready, go. Like, what, what's the food court selection like in, uh, in Ethiopia? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was, a, that was a long, a long night for sure. I think it was, uh, uh, I actually remember randomly, it was the Super Bowl Sunday uh, that that was happening. So like it must have been early, yeah, early February or something like that. Um, and I was like half, I don't know, it was just one of those like crazy moments. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, ended up, you know, actually uh, successfully did climb, uh, you know, Kilimanjaro in 11 hours. So in one single push from the base of the summit, um, but, you know, might not have enough time to go into all those details, but that in itself is its own kind of crazy story. But yeah, it was just kind of unfolding like this, like just these different legs and trying to link them together, but also the, the logistics of pulling it all together was crazy as well. And um, yeah, just the adventure kind of continued day, day in and day out. Man, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, it's it's even a miracle that you mentioned kind of just the logistics and the, and the start of all this, that some small little thing like I don't, a tripping on the mountain, uh, getting a food illness didn't throw all this off for you. So yeah. That, I no, mean, that, totally. that's unbelievable too. So then what was next for you? First of all, totally agree with that. It's funny. I, I of course, love telling the, the harrowing stories. I'll tell some about, you know, Everest and, you know, the things I encountered up there, but you know, it's, it's a hundred percent true. In the end, I was, this, this all unfolded over 139 consecutive days, every continent in the world, um, you know, North pole, South pole. And it was all the little things. It was all these tiny, tiny little things that added up to the success. You know, we had some bad weather, but ultimately being, you know, lucky enough with the weather and, uh, you know, men's journal was one of the first, you know, glossy magazines to cover this story. And I think they actually, uh, I said this quote like offhand, I didn't expect them to kind of pull it out, but actually in the print version of men's journal, which, you know, millions of copies are all across the country is a poll quote. That's like, yeah, if I trip on a rock, taking a piss outside of my tent, you know, that's going to end this whole thing. <laughs> so I was like, great. That's yeah. what they decided to quote in the magazine. But it's, it's to your point, which is like, yes, you need to be safe and healthy, um, you know, as you, you know, traverse these crazy landscapes, but it's also like, yeah, twisting my ankle and some dumb thing or eating a, you know, a, a, a rotten, you know, piece of food while I'm going through the Kathmandu airport or something like that. And I'm, you know, sick for 10 days, boom, project over. So it was really, um, a lot, a lot of detail and care that went into the success of all this. So, um, you know, after Kilimanjaro, next up was um, Karstens Pyramid, uh, which is uh, in Indonesia, rock climbing spire over there. And then uh, from there to Elbrus, which is the tallest mountain, not to be confused with Everest, but Elbrus um, is the tallest mountain in Europe. It's uh, in the Caucasus and western part of Russia. Um, and that mountain is almost always climbed in summer. So June, July is the typical, um, you know, place or 
time of year that that's climbed, but because of this record, I needed to kind of fit it in elsewhere. So I made a winter <laughs> ascent of Mount Elbrus, which is yeah, of a quite a colder <laughs> and a lot more challenging um, than the summer ascent. Um, but that was that was next up from there. And finishing Elbrus meant that I was, you know, I say I was you know two thirds of the way done with the project because six expeditions were completed. But you probably heard this metaphor before when people say about marathons. They're like, you know, when you're running a marathon, the marathon really starts at mile twenty. Um, and that's kind of how I felt after finishing the six ones. I was like, great. So this is working. We finished six, like these have all been challenging, but the final third of this project, which is the North pole, Mount Everest and Denali was going to be the real crux of this project. Um, you know, basically objectively, those are the three most challenging expeditions of the nine anyways. Um, I'd already been going for, you know, 80, 90, hundred days at this point. So I'm exhausted and they all stack right up on top of each other because of the weather windows, making it, you know, even more challenging to accomplish them at the end of all of this. And so really that's when I, I say like the project, it like, it seemed really hard before that, but now when we're looking back, I'm like, Oh God, that was just like the, the preamble to the, to the real, the real crazy things that were about to unfold with uh, those final three. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new brain stick pack. Perfect before a workout or a study session, their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you to as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. I mean, can we pause here for a second? I mean, you mentioned, oh yeah, this is going to be daunting. We've got these gigantic tasks still ahead of us. I mean, really, what is your self-talk like during this time? Were there thoughts, hey, maybe, maybe I can't do this. Maybe I should stop. You know, I didn't have a lot of, you know, that negative self-talk around, you know, quitting or giving up. Um, and certainly there, there was a few moments where, the, you know, the fear definitely, you know, ratcheted up, particularly, you know, when I get caught in a big storm on Everest and things like that. Um, but mostly, you know, I, I applied the methodology that worked really well for me of really zeroing in on the thing in front of me. Um, you know, you, people, you know, talk about this a little bit, again, back to that kind of incremental process, which was when I zoomed out and looked up the magnitude of this entire project, it seemed so daunting, right? You know, even standing at the base of Mount Everest and looking up to the top, you're just like, it's not humanly possible that a person could walk all the way up there. Like that's so far, like that's so crazy. Um, but it was more like each day, like Jenna and I would check in and it would be like, okay, like what's the task today? So like, like I said before, like the task after Aconcagua to Kilimanjaro on that day was like, take care of myself in the Sao Paulo airport and fly to Ethiopia and get through that. You know, it was like, that's all I was thinking about in that moment. And so even in the, the sort of physical exertion, each one of these days was like, you know, I'm day three of the North Pole expedition. It's like, okay, my job today is to get up, to cook breakfast, pack my sled, you know, you know, hike as far as I possibly can get towards the North Pole, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and onward from there. So really the, the self-talk was kind of like really zeroing in on the focus of the daily or the moment to moment to task and not worrying too much about, you know, the entire magnitude of it all. I'm also curious just about, I mean, the physical nature of all this. I mean, you're used to suffering, grew up a swimmer, so you're used to those hours in the pool, uh, obviously with the triathlon as well. Was this physically, I mean, was your body just in a completely different state in terms of how taxing this was? 
Yeah, you know, there was something very different about this entire project. You know, as you mentioned, I grew up a swimmer um, and then even racing triathlon, which the races obviously are significantly longer than a swim race. But still, with both swimming and triathlon, it's a single um, day or moment of high performance. So you're really training super hard for several months, and then you give your body a little bit of rest and relaxation, often referred to as a taper. Um, and then you perform on the one day, you know, like you're your fittest, you're your strongest, you're your most mentally ready. And it's like, boom, ready, go. Whereas with this project, it, there was never that peak moment. In fact, it was like, I need to be strong and steady every single day, but I can't burn all of my matches in one single moment or one single epic summit push because I need to come down off this mountain and climb another mountain, you know? And it was interesting. Of course, I met other fellow expeditioners and mountaineers in each one of these places. And most of the people that I met were climbing just that one mountain. So you meet somebody on Aconcago or you meet somebody on Everest and like, that's their big moment for the year or for the decade or for, you know, they've been thinking (laughs) their life, sir. Right. And you know, it's not uncommon for say on an Everest expedition for someone to lose 20 or 30 pounds. Like it's not uncommon in Antarctica, you know, South pole with Vincent to again, lose like a significant amount of weight. And it's okay, particularly if like, that's your one big push. And then after that, like you're going home and you can recover for several months. It's like, okay, whatever. Like I lost a lot of weight or I'm a little bit weak coming off of this, but I had to keep in the back of my mind. It's like, this is not my one big push. And so I kind of had to have that focus, which is very different than triathlon or swimming where you're like, this is my one big moment. This is my one big day. It was like, this is a massive day, but there's another big day tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. So, you know, I had to make sure that I kept eating a crazy amount of food, even though I wasn't hungry. So I tried to like not lose weight. I'm already pretty thin. Um, and I didn't certainly didn't have 10 to 15 pounds to lose on each one of these expeditions, I would have been disappeared by the end. Um, and so that, that mindset was very different. The one thing that did prepare me well for that, I would say is, was actually more so than the triathlon racing was actually the triathlon training. So like I said, I raced professionally for six years and, you know, I suffered a couple of setbacks and injuries throughout that time, but I never had any sort of major, major injuries. Um, and you know, any experience, you know, triathlete or endurance athlete will tell you is that consistency over time pays much more significant dividends than the best three months in crazy hard training period of, of all time, you know, and then falling apart and getting injured. So I had learned kind of how to link year into year and season into season and week into month and month into, you know, the next month and race all the while traveling around the world with, you know, the international circuit. So that sort of consistency over time in the training methodology actually lended really well to figuring out how to link these expeditions and travel and all these things together in a consistent way. Oh, that's too cool. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard about some of the draconian things you've done even post this and it's just mind boggling what you're capable of. But I mean, now I want to get into the, the gritty details and some of these hardest challenges. So what's next for you there? Yeah. So the final third kind of unfolds and it gets off to a terrible start, which is we get to the North pole. Um, so you actually stage for the North pole out of a place called long Yerbian, which is up on an Island called Spitsbergen. Look that up on a map. Um, it's technically, <laughs> technically part of Norway, but it's a, an Island off the Northern North coast of Norway inside of the Arctic circle. Um, and then from there, this actually, these, these Russians actually build this crazy ice runway out on the Arctic ocean. So of course the North pole, there's no land mass underneath it. So you actually walking around on a frozen ocean, um, up there and they got to figure out how to, you know, land a plane up there. So they've been putting this scientific research and expedition base out on the Arctic ice every year since the mid nineties. Um, and you know, due to climate change, it's getting harder and harder for them to find, you know, solid enough ice to literally land a plane on. And so, you know, they say, you know, I'm supposed to fly there on April 4th. Again, I should set this, set the scene a little bit, which is most people start climbing Everest on the first week of April, meaning they start, you know, they get to Nepal, they start climbing through the Kumbu Valley, getting acclimatized to the higher altitudes. And usually people are on Everest for about two months. The summit windows is a very specific window about the second or third week of May, sometimes the last week of May, but that's about it. Um, so for me, instead of being in the mountains, instead of being, you know, working towards Everest, instead of being at high altitude, here I am at the North pole, literally walking around on frozen sea, um, at sea level, not acclimatizing. And that's the only weather window. So, um, that was already stressful enough, but I'm like, great. If I get out there, fly out there on April 4th, you know, it'll take me a week to get to the North pole and I can be to Everest by mid April. Okay. April 4th comes around. They're like, sorry, there's huge cracks in the ice. We can't land the plane. 
how long is it going to take to find a place? I don't know. Maybe a day, maybe five days, maybe a week. Ultimately, it was eight days until they found a viable way to even get us to the ice. So instead of beginning my expedition on the 4th of April, I didn't actually begin my expedition until the 12th of April. And each one of those days, I'm at sea level, and that's cutting in to my even possibility of having any sort of success on Everest. So those were some of the most stressful times of the entire project emotionally, of just each day helplessly sitting there. It's like, there's nothing that I can literally do to fix an ice runway in the middle of the Arctic. Like, I am, I like, there's nothing. I'm just like sitting there like every day asking this like one Russian dude in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, like, did they fix it today? And he's like, nope, check back with me tomorrow. And there's like, like, um, so that was, that was brutal. Ultimately, um, I did reach the North pole on April 9th. And again, at this point, most people have been on Everest for three weeks. So I try to get, you know, from the North pole as fast as I can, um, over to Everest. But by the time I actually reach Everest base camp, you can't just fly into Everest base camp either. It's at 17,000 feet. You know, you would be very sick of altitude. So I need to fly to lower altitudes and hike in after several days. You know, I arrived at Everest base camp on April 27th, uh, 2016, about a month behind the traditional, uh, climbing schedule. And I was actually the very last person of the entire climbing season to arrive to Mount Everest base camp, um, and successfully summit the mountain. So I was really up against it. And so instead of having the customary about eight weeks to climb the mountain, I now had about at best three weeks to see if I could get myself acclimatized from sea level and up to the tallest, you know, no point in her. Well, I mean, <laughs> you show hey, the new guys here, like what's everyone thinking? Is this kid nuts? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I actually, so I, you know, I take this helicopter from Kathmandu and, and get dropped off in the Khumbu Valley. You know, there's basically several little villages below the Mount Everest base camp. And I get dropped off in this place called Farache and I get, I get in the helicopter. Um, and I notice there's like some cameras and stuff set up in the helicopter. And I'm like, they're like, ask, like guys asking me like, Oh, so where are you flying? What are you trying to do? You're, you must just be trekking. Like all the climbers are already in there. And I'm like, no, no, I'm actually trying to summit Everest. And they're like, they kind of like their eyes kind of get really wide. And they're like, really? Like you're kind of late. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm trying to set this world record. And I got delayed at the North pole. I kind of like tell them my whole little spiel. And then all of a sudden this guy goes like, Hey, um, do you mind if we interview you? We're actually filming this TV show. And I'm like, I'm thinking like, Oh, that's cool. Like I'm trying to get press and media around my project. And I think it's cool. I'm doing a world record. So they do this interview with me and it's just kind of a normal, they like, tell me about your background tell me what you're trying to accomplish. And Oh, you're pretty late. And like all this sort of stuff. And so the, they turn the cameras off and I'm like, Oh, so what's this show for? And they're like, Oh, it's a show on discovery channel. Um, and it's about the, uh, rescues of all the people that are dying or getting injured up in the mountains. It's about the helicopter rescues up on the mountain of Everest this season. And I'm like, okay, Just your mind and right. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, and they're like, and I'm like, and you guys think that I'm going to get into trouble up there. Cause I'm so late. So you want to get an interview with me before so that you can get Jeez. an interview with me post when you pick me up. And they're kind of like, well, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, great. Like, Great vote of confidence. Like these guys are interviewing me like, oh, great, fresh meat. We're going to be picking this guy off on the side of the mountain with altitude sickness in a couple of weeks. And it'll be great that we got the pre-interview, you know, like classic <laughs> reality television producer mindset. Um, and, of, you know, when I, you know, we'll tell more about Everest, but when I did successfully get out there, I saw the guy at the helicopter and he's like, no way. Like you've actually made it. Like, man, yeah, we, we thought you were a great character for the show in the, in the, you know, helicopter ambulance. I'm like, great. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> but that was kind of funny. But anyway, so, you know, I get to Everest. Everest obviously is incredibly challenging. Um, I was just climbing with myself and a Sherpa by the name of Pasang Bodhi, um, who I'd met climbing the Himalayas when I was training the year previously. Um, and you know, we were climbing, you know, independently, not with any guides or anything like that, but a friend of mine who owns a guiding company let us, uh, climb under their permit. So I was able to use some of the infrastructure that they had set up on the mountain instead of having to set everything up on my own. But it's just Pasang Bodhi and I climbing independently, kind of making our own decisions. Um, and it looks like there was a weather window opening up. Um, uh, you know, after, again, we've been on the mountain for several weeks and, you know, trying to kind of, you know, push as much as possible. I was having some hard time acclimatizing a little bit, but my body was doing reasonably well considering how quickly I had ascended to the high altitudes. Um, and the way Everest is for those who don't know, basically there's base camp and then there's four camps higher. So camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four, progressively higher on the mountain. You climb up to the higher camps, get your body used to that thin air and then climb higher. And then from camp four is where you go to the summit. And so we're in camp two and it looks like there's a weather wind potentially opening up a small weather window to go for the summit. And so Pasang Bodhi and I decide, hey, we might have a shot at this weather window. 
let's climb up to camp four, but we're going to have to skip camp three. So, uh, to make the weather window. So we climbed directly from camp two to camp four in one single push, which is a massive, um, you know, physical effort. Again, that's most usually split up into two, you know, big climbing days. Um, we get up to camp four and an idea basically of camp four is to, you, you kind of sleep just a couple hours, but then you set off in the middle of the night for the summit. Um, and for those of you who have read, you know, John cracked hours in a thin air or know much about Everest, you know, camp four, which also known as the South call also known as the death zone. You're above 26,000 feet where the human body literally cannot survive for very long, even with supplementary oxygen, which I was using. Um, anyone who knows about Everest knows that a lot of people have died in camp four. It's the theater of some of like the highest drama that the mountains ever seen. It's a, you know, pretty, um, inhospitable place and something that I've read about and imagined many times. So it arrived there was like, Oh my God, like here I am. I'm like at the precipice of the summit push. And then all of a sudden this beautiful sunny day turns into just a devastatingly cold and windy and fierce storm. Uh, you know, 50, 60 mile per hour winds kick up. It takes Basang, Bodhi and I, you know, two hours just to, you know, uh, get, you know, set up our tent and get back inside to survive the night. And there's, uh, basically we immediately have to give up our shot of even trying to attempt the summit. We're just going to be lucky to get through the night. Yeah. So, um, you know, coming back down the mountain, having to retreat out of the storm was, you know, devastating for me, you know, thought that potentially the expedition was completely over. Um, but went back down to camp two to regroup a little bit with Pasang Bodhi and, um, you know, in a weird kind of one of those weird twists of fate that also happened, which is I had started using my supplementary oxygen, which meant that I might not have enough oxygen stored up high since I had already used some of it. Um, I had met a guy who got sick down at camp two and was going to have to abandon his attempt on Everest. And he said to me, Hey, Colin, if you do have the energy to get back up there, there's a few oxygen bottles I've stored up there. You can use mine. So that at least gave me you know, uh, a prayer of a chance of getting back up there if I, you know, was able to get back up there. So sure enough, a few days later, um, the, uh, the, the weather looked like it was going to open up again. And so, you know, Pasang Bodhi and I again climbed back up to camp four. Um, and now the weather forecast was calling for basically the exact same, you know, set of circumstances where it's like, it could be all right, but it could also change really quickly. And I had seen how fast it could change. And so, you know, my fear, was, you know, at an all time high. Um, and kind of like, well, luckily last time we were near our tent, but what if we were up near the summit? Like, how would you get down? You could die. You know, this is Everest. I know all the history. And so that was like, you asked about self, you know, self doubt and negative self talk earlier. And that was definitely, you know, really ramping up for me at that point. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you handle the thought of you might actually die on that mountain? Because during, uh, the time you were up there, people did die, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, three people on the day that I did summit did pass away. Um, you know, I wasn't not people I was climbing with or new, but I found that out afterwards, but yeah, you know, the, the, the risks are definitely real. Um, and, you know, doing kind of, you know, again, you mentioned, you know, there's definitely a theme in my story of, you know, strong, powerful women, um, you know, doing kind of the only thing I could think of to calm my mind here. I am in a tent at, you know, in the death zone at 26,000 feet, like afraid to get out of my tent and climb for the summit. I call, you know, call home to Jenna and I say, you know, Hey Jenna, you know, I'm afraid, you know, I think people might die on Everest tonight. The forecast is, you know, marginal, you know, what should I do? And again, similar to my mother kind of pushing aside her own fear in Thailand and kind of t being positive around me, Jenna kind of did the exact same thing where she was like, you know what, Colin, like you've trained for this. You've dreamed of summiting this mountain your entire life. People are going to summit Mount Everest tonight. And there's no reason you can't be one of them. Like, you know, face your fear, get outside of the tent. Um, you can do it. I believe in you. That is awesome. Um, and it was amazing and it was exactly what I needed to hear. But I also know because it, she was tears because she was like, you know, all I wanted to do was tell him to come down. I'm afraid, but you know, he needs me to be strong for him right now. And so it's this incredible duality, um, both of my mother and Jenna and both of these, you know, really intense moments to be able to be strong, to encourage me. Uh, yeah. So that's, um, you know, basically I get outside of the tent and I, you know, it's a really crazy hard and challenging climb through the middle of the night. Um, but I do eventually reach the summit of Mount Everest and, you know, it's incredible to be, you know, to be on top of the world, to be at the summit of this mountain that I'd always dreamed of climbing. Um, and know that I only have one mountain left to climb to finish the grand slam. And so, um, you know, any good mountaineer will tell you that the summit's really only halfway. So you can't really celebrate till you're, you know, really safely back on the ground. But I do climb back down to camp four, you know, exhaustedly take off my boots, takes about an hour, get in my tent and climb inside there, called Jenna. Um, and I was like, I summited Everest. Like I did it. You know, we just got one mountain left to go. 
And then she then says something to me that I will never forget, which is she's like, great. So how are you feeling? I'm like, you know, like no frostbite, no injuries. I think I'm good. I'm exhausted, whatever. And she's like, okay, so um, I actually need you to put your boots back on right now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, you know, we've been doing some calculating back home. And it just so happens that if you can reach the summit of Denali in the next week, um, you have a chance of not setting one, but two world records. You could set the speed record for also the seven summits, which is like an even more prestigious record, which I didn't think I was going to be able to do because I was going to the polls and all this. And she's like, yeah, so I've made the logistics. Here's what you need to do. And here's Jenna's like crazy logistics coming into play again. She's like, so I need you to climb all the way back down to base camp right now. Just climbing back down to base camp from camp four usually takes people, you know, several days. Okay. Climb back down to base camp right now. Um, and I've arranged for a helicopter that'll take you directly from base camp to Kathmandu. There's no time for you to sleep overnight in a hotel or take a shower, but an evening flight will take you from Kathmandu to Dubai, Dubai to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage. And then, you know, I normally it only takes about three weeks to climb, but if you can climb it in three days, um, you'll set the second world record too. Ready? Go. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Um, and so it was this, uh, you know, kind of crazy moment, but you know, of course she knows how, you know, competitive and driven I am. And also I know better than to try to not listen to her crazy logistic plan. So sure enough, put my boots back on. We executed Jenna's plan and just a hundred hours after standing on the summit of Mount Everest, I find myself at the base of Denali to attempt my final, uh, climb up the mountain. Wait, did you actually just kind of put your boots on and just start hiking right away? Pretty much, you know, Jeez. within an hour. I'd, you know, <laughs> you really are nuts. <laughs> down the mountain. Um, and uh, so the, uh, you know, the next few days on Denali were crazy. My, a, a good buddy of mine, Tucker, um, who I grew up swimming with, who's a great mountaineer, came over um, and met me to climb on Denali. That was always the plan for him to be my climbing partner out there. And, you know, I kind of show up and I'm like, hey, man, so we got to do this thing quick. And he was like, okay, like, I'm here for you. You're the one that's been out climbing for 130 some days at this point. Like, he's like, he's fresh, obviously, thank God. Um, and so, you know, we push as hard as we can, you know, Denali in itself is a very, very challenging mountain, very cold, very dangerous. Um, you know, we get about halfway up the mountain in one kind of one or two day big push and we're still two camps, you know, there's still a camp higher and then the push to the summit. But we think the only shot we have is to skip that camp and try to push all the way from where we're at at 14,000 feet, all the way to the summit, 20,000 feet and all the way back down. Um, which just that segment is usually multiple days for people. And then again, a huge storm gets dumped on us. Um, just a massive, massive storm. You know, we're talking, you know, at the ranger station reported 80 mile per hour winds that night, the highest, you know, wind gusts of the entire season. Um, just brutal conditions. And I kind of go to sleep and I'm like, you know, Tucker, you know, who knows we wake up tomorrow. It might be good. And he's like, the weather forecast says a storm's going to be here for 10 days. Like this is not like some tiny little storm, but you know, we wake up the next day and sure enough, it's just still, we're just getting hammered by this wind. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is a Henry Ford quote that says, you know, he who says he can and he who says he can't are usually both right. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of say to Tucker, like, do you think we can hike for, you know, 15 minutes, just kind of test it out? We're like 12 hours, best case scenario below the summit at this point. He's like, dude, I'm here for you, man. Like, you want to put all your climbing stuff on and like walk out into the storm for a few minutes? Like, whatever, fine. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, we, 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 put on our, our gear and we start climbing and, you know, 15 minutes goes by and he's like, how you feeling? I'm like, well, I'm all right. You want to do another 15? We're like, another 15. Um, you know, you know, getting blown around. We actually in the next hour get blown off our feet by the wind, you know, it's a pretty brutal storm, but we continue slowly making our way up. And sure enough, you know, just, uh, you know, we, we kind of fight and battle through this storm. No one on the entire mountain of Denali, uh, leaves their tent to climb in either direction that day. But we climb from 14,000 feet in this major windstorm up to the summit um, and reach, you know, May 27th, 2016, reach the summit of Denali um, and, you know, set set the Explorers Grand Slam world record, which I broke by about two months, but also um, by one day broke the seven summits record. So in that moment, I became a two-time world record holder. I mean, could you enjoy that moment up top there? You know, there's a funny video clip um, of me and I pull out my GoPro. We're trying to film and, you know, share as much content as we can throughout this so we can share it with all the, you know, school kids and various people following along um, uh, to, you know, kind of amplify the media efforts of this campaign and fuel the nonprofit work that we're doing. Um, and there's this moment, it's like actually the moment that I um, uh, set the world record. I actually fall to my knees kind of kiss the ground. There's this little like marking post that's the summit of Denali. And then I say something like slur, totally slurred words. I'm like, I'm a two time world record holder. <laughs> like, I'm like, 
But like, and then I get up and I hug Tucker and you would think like it would be like elation or this huge smile on my face. And there's just this like vacant stare in my eyes of just <laughs> utter like relief, exhaustion. Um, but, you know, as funny as it is to watch that clip back, because I'm clearly, you know, literally it's been 139 days nonstop. I'm also proud of that. It's like, I remember those last five, six hours fighting through that storm to get to the summit where I was like, you know, talk about self-talk as I was like on my last, last legs. But I was like, this is what it takes. Like you set a crazy ambitious goal. Like no one said this was going to be easy. Like fight step by step, inch by inch up this mountain to get to the summit. And so that, like that moment um, on the summit, I don't know if it was, we didn't quite celebrate really again until we got back down, but it was this moment of like, Oh my God, like somehow we did this, but it was also like, now I got to get down off this mountain and I need to like a warm meal and a bed, like get me out of here. So, uh, the celebration unfolded over the next several days as we actually made it off the mountain and back to safety and warmth and all that good stuff. I mean, it's still just absolutely incredible hearing this story and, and everything you accomplished during that. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, I mean, what are your next big audacious goals? You have to have something in the back of your mind. Yeah, you know, I got a couple of things that I'm working on, you know, one of which that I'm really excited to share and hopefully your listeners can participate or you can participate. So, um, you know, my next project is launching in June, July of this year, um, and it's the 50 high points. So I'm going to try to set the speed record for climbing the tallest mountain in each of the 50 states faster than that's ever been done before. Um, the fastest current time is 41 days. Um, and, you know, I think it can be done, you know, uh, Privately, I think it can maybe be done in 25, 30 days. I don't know, but I'd be happy from just breaking it by a day. But um, the way the record works and her, where the participation, participation element comes in is it starts back on Denali. So interestingly enough, I'll pick up right where I left off and go back to Alaska and climb Denali again. Um, the record itself doesn't actually, or the clock, similar to the world, uh, the Grand Slam, doesn't actually start till you reach the summit of the first peak. So it actually doesn't so much matter how fast I climb Denali this time. It more matters how quickly I can get off the mountain and on to the next. Um, so I'll summit Denali, get down off the mountain, fly over to Hawaii, summit the tallest mountain in Hawaii, uh, Mauna Kea, quickly, and then fly to Florida. And then this is where it gets interesting. So the tallest mountain in Florida is, you know, a 300 foot hill on the side of the road. <laughs> uh, it's Florida after all. Um, and basically I'll be in, you know, an RV or, uh, you know, some sort of vehicle where I can sleep and I'm either going to be, you know, climbing a mountain or being transported between the mountains, basically in constant motion from mountain to mountain. And, um, imagine you've seen the movie Forrest Gump before. Um, but, uh, we're calling, you know, this next part of the leg the Forrest Gump effect, which is, you know, my hope is to get as many people out to participate in these various legs as possible. So, you know, some of these mountains, once you get out towards the West, of course, are, you know, bigger, snowy challenge, more challenging mountains, but, you know, in the Midwest and the East, you know, you've got everything from the, the 300 foot bump on the side of the road of Florida to, you know, day hikes to, you know, one and two and three mile, you know, hikes. And the idea really is, is as I, you know, spread this message of health and wellness and getting outside, um, you know, I want to tell other people's stories. You know, my story is just one story, but each and every person I believe has a story. I'm not just some superhuman person. And this project has a way for people to really, um, it really to be accessible. So from red states to blue states, to urban communities, to rural communities, to, you know, the deserts, to the high Alpine, to the deciduous forests, you know, the diversity of the landscape of our country and the people in it is really remarkable. And so the hope is, is as I climb the tallest mountain in each of the 50 states and basically take this long, crazy road trip to set another world record that we're getting as many people as possible out to join in, um, on the project. So, you know, I just launched a new website, which is just my name, colinobrady.com. There's a, uh, a newsletter and a tab on there for expedition where you can, you know, sign up, put your email address in, um, you know, what state you're in and we'll keep you in the loop as the logistics unfold, but it's going to be, you know, June and July this year, really kind of late June and mid, mid to mid July where we're trying to get people out to participate. Um, and even for those who can't participate in person, you know, follow along the journey on my social, you know, at Colin O'Brady on Instagram, uh, we're going to be filming this whole thing. And we really just want to hear other people's stories of, of inspiration and perseverance and, you know, just getting people, uh, involved and outside. Oh, Colin, man, this has been way too much fun. I uh, can't thank you enough and good luck with that. We're definitely gonna be following along and, uh, hopefully when you make it out to Jersey, uh, we can come out and support. So thanks again. Heck yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new Brain Stick Pack. Perfect before a workout or a study session, their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you too as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Let's face it, we all want to look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. DSTLD, pronounced Distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because Distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.